Mr. Ralph Rinton, Timo Brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Thursday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except because he was sick earlier in the week. It's on a Thursday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. And what follows as he does every week on the podcast. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note. Some granular hitting data. Some granular hitting data. August Fagerstrom wrote a piece for Fangraphs this week in which he detailed Mookie Betts' success last season to the pole field. Fifth best batter by that measure among all major league hitters. And yet what one also finds is that Mookie Betts maintains an all-fields approach as a batter. What would happen, I asked Cameron, if Mookie Betts decided to pull the ball more often? And in a more general sense, is pulling the ball good or not? We hear of players like Bryce Harper, who opt to pull the ball and produce one of the best seasons of the 21st century. Meanwhile, in other cases, we hear about players who become pull-happy or pull-conscious and the negative effects it can have on their overall production. Dave Cameron shed some light on the subject. Shed some light on the subject. In this topic of more granular hitting data, one finds the 2016 season has provided greater exit velocity data, batted ball velocity data, care of StatCast. As Jeff Sullivan pointed out this week, six of Trevor Story's first 10 batted balls exceeded 100 miles per hour. That sounds impressive. What are some benchmarks, though? And what do those sort of figures look like in context? Cameron helps us to understand that as well. Some discussion of Noah Syndergaard. Recent news that former first-round Marlins pick Tyler Kolek will undergo Tommy John surgery. Also, one can enjoy this, which is Dave Cameron attempting to remember the word adrenaline. Whatever that word is that uh, generally people associate with... uh Having energy, uh, you know, inspiration. I don't know. That's not the right word. Once again, that's Dave Cameron attempting to remember the word adrenaline. An amusing interval in what follows. What's occurring right now, however, is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek. You ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Or you find the exact ticket you want, and then you get to the checkout area when attempting to purchase them, and you find that there are fees that have been added. That's why I need to try SeatGeek, because not only have they made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. They're also honest and upfront about the price. You don't add fees like you find elsewhere. How do they do it? I can't guarantee that I know. However, I've been led to believe that SeatGeek, what they'll do is they'll pull tickets available on other sites all into one place, essentially aggregating the tickets so that you save time and you never miss a deal. And on that topic of not missing deals, SeatGeek also allows you to set alerts for upcoming games and events and then will notify you at such a time as the prices of those tickets fall. Even better, appealing to the nerd in you, every ticket at SeatGeek is given a grade based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. Do they call it Ticketball as opposed to Moneyball? Do they call it Ticketball? No, they don't, because that would be a bad name. What they do, however, is allow you to see the perspective view from your seat of where you'd be sitting in uh, whatever park or concert hall you've decided to go to. And is it the best part? I don't know if it's the best part, but it's a fact that listeners of Fangraphs Audio receive a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. Here's how you do it. You download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Enter the promo code Fangraphs. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. Fangraphs. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code Fangraphs today, or if not today, at your leisure. Okay, that is the end of the sponsor's message. Thank you, SeatGeek. And we move on. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? A sick, sick Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. for the pitch talk events tonight. Pitch talks event. 
say this because this is very clearly not oughtn't be the feature, but what is Pitch Talks? Uh, well, we can have a whole talk about Pitch Talks. We can just have a whole podcast about it. Uh, Pitch Talks is essentially a uh, discussion panel slash kind of, I think the, the sales pitch is like 10 talks to baseball, but it's a lot of like Q&As and, uh, you know, not that different from the Fangraphs live events we've done around the country. Uh, so I'm doing a panel with Ben Nicholson-Smith uh, and Arden Welling, uh, and then uh, Jonah Carey and Gord Ash and a few other guys are doing one, Dan Schulman, I think. And then uh, Mark Shapiro is doing a Q&A with Stephen Brunt. Uh, so, so, you know, like a series of discussions about baseball. Right. And it's in Toronto. Uh, yeah. If it wasn't in Toronto, it would be unfortunate that I was here. Yes, that would be a grave miscalculation on your part. Yeah, yeah. You're not from you're not from Toronto at all. I am not from Toronto. No, uh, and I think we should also note, perhaps just for uh, for the purposes of quality assurance or quality control, you are what you recovering from some sort of malady that your child gave you. I don't think I'm recovering. I'm suffering from. Oh, all right. Yeah, we will hear wheezing and sniffling and uh, and maybe maybe my death here on the podcast. All right, fair enough. All right, I want to ask you. I want to start off by asking you for some clarifications on some things. And uh, in part, I guess, I mean, one place to to, to begin this question is uh, to start off by talking about Mookie Betts. Okay. Mookie I like Bet- talking about Mookie Betts. Sure. August Fagerstrom wrote about Mookie Betts today. August Fagerstrom happens to live in the Cleveland area. Uh, uh, which in which city the Boston Red Sox have just concluded, I guess, probably just concluded a series with the Cleveland Indians. And uh, he was able to talk not only with Mookie Betts, but also Dustin Pedroia, um, who in terms of uh, profile, uh, he very much resembles, it turns out. And then also Chili Davis, hitting coach Chili Davis. Uh, Red Sox hitting coach Chili Davis. Anyway, here's what he found out. Uh, uh, Mookie Betts, I think, as like maybe it was last year, had the fifth highest... Um, you know, adjusted batting line to the pole field last year. Okay. Uh, and, you know, it's, he's on there with essentially like four other very good power hitters. Four, <coughs> four very good power power hitters, and then there's Mookie Betts. Right, who you wouldn't generally call a power hitter. Right, he's what, five foot nine? Uh, yeah, generous probably. Yeah, right. So so this is his physique. But he, but he, hits, uh, he hits very well to the pole side. Um, but, but he also probably uh, hits – much more frequently to straightaway center and to the opposite field than the other four guys who are who appear on that list. Okay. <laughs> so, so, sorry. That's all right. This will be a high quality podcast. So what I what I here's it begins this conversation is we know that Mookie Betts has some success going to pull field, although maybe that should not be a priority for him. In other cases. Um, I seem to recall, for example, Bryce Harper perhaps focusing more on going to the pole field last year. There, there are cases where I think like Brian Dozier maybe wouldn't have a career <laughs> if he didn't go, if he didn't focus on going to the pole field. He would be the worst player ever. Right, but if he but, just hit the ball to right field. Yeah. Right, but he he's developed, or I don't know if it's he's developed a skill. His approach has allowed him to remain a rather productive infielder, um, perhaps surprisingly so. Yeah, and I guess. But at the at the same time, I also hear you hear about a batter. He's become too pull conscious, pull happy, and this is this becomes a problem. So I guess I'm looking for: is there any sort of rule of thumb about when it is good and when it is not good for a hitter to either to to focus on pulling the ball or not do that? Well, I think there's pros and cons to both, right? So if you if you pull the ball a lot, 
you are probably going to hit for more power because it's easier to pull the ball uh, over the wall than it is to hit the ball out to center or the opposite field. Uh, but you're also going to be shiftable, right? So especially for left-handed hitters, this becomes a pretty big deal where if they are super pull-heavy, they are going to uh, – defenses will take a lot of their hits away. And uh, the inability to go to the opposite field makes them easier to defend. Um, also, I think what you understand is if you're, if you're very pull-heavy – uh, it's generally a sign that it's not always, and obviously with Mookie Betts this isn't the case, but it's a sign that maybe your bat has slowed and you're cheating. So I think uh, Tony Bogino's written about this a few times of like kind of the life cycle of a power hitter is kind of toward the end of his career, and I think Raul Abanez is one of the cases that he often plays to. His guys, as they lose their power, they can't hit the ball uh, to center or the opposite fields. Often uh, they they cheat and they start pulling the ball over the wall to try and get as much power as they can from their skill set, but by cheating, they set themselves up to swing and miss at a lot of pitches. And so a lot of times, uh, pull-heavy guys will also be strikeout guys. It's uh, it's an approach that goes with swinging and missing a lot. That does not seem to be the case with Mookie Betts. Okay, so should Mookie Betts... We know that that uh, the performances reveal that he was very successful last year when he pulled the ball. Is there an argument to be made that he should pull the ball more often? Uh, maybe. I mean, I think what we're seeing is like the second half of Mookie Betts when he hit for power, he ran like a 220 ISO or something. Uh, that was one of the best players in baseball because he, I think he had like a 140 WRC plus from June on. Uh, While also and, playing uh, at least average, if not better, yeah, defense, yeah, being a very good base runner. I mean, he was a, you know, he was a superstar for the right. last four months of the season. So if if pulling the ball was what drove the power spike, and he can continue to pull the ball without seeing an increase in his strikeout rate. Uh, then yeah, I think the pole power Mookie bats will be more valuable than the slap the ball around the field Mookie bats. Do you find that happening if if you find a player emphasizing the pole, uh, going to the pole field, do you find typically an attendant increase in strikeouts? I think that's true. I haven't actually seen uh, convincing evidence, so I guess, to say that every single time, every single hitter who pulls the ball more is going to swing, swing and miss more, but it does seem to be that those two things were correlated. Okay, and here's another question. is I know that Jose Bautista essentially created a career for himself, or a much better career for himself, by uh, by becoming a, a very pole heavy hitter. And if you look at his, uh, if you look at the heat maps, the w- the way like the pitches at which he swings versus doesn't, you know he's focusing very much on on the inner half of the plate, the upper half of the plate to get the ball in the air as well. Um, he hits a lot of home runs. He doesn't he doesn't strike out too much. Um, and I'm not sure if he ever did, but uh, we also find that his um, that his batting average on ball in play is quite low on yeah. balls in play, and this is also the case for for Encarnacion too. I mean, they have very yeah. similar batting profiles. They don't strike out a lot. They pull the ball a lot. Is 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 the low BABIP? Is that a function of pulling, or is that a function of putting the ball in the air? Well, both. I mean, so Batista is an extreme fly ball hitter, uh, and when you hit the ball in the air and it doesn't go over the fence, it's almost always caught. Uh, not always, but, you know, with a hot, much higher frequency than a ground ball. So guys who hit the ball uh, in the air a lot are going to run lower babbits. Uh, but I think there also uh, uh, there is some uh, right-handed shifting that still goes on. Just because Mookie Betts and Emily Batista and Emily Kronosian are, are right-handers doesn't mean they're immune to the shift. Teams are still shifting right-handed hitters. So when you're extreme pull guys and the defense can line up against you in a more effective way, you're less likely to get singles. Okay, yeah. And in fact, I, I hadn't known it before, but the Blue Jays as a club, uh, it looks like we're second in poll percentage last year. Yeah, um, it's like an organizational philosophy for them. Yeah, it seems to work out because they also had the most <laughs> runs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> having guys who can hit the ball really far is good. Right, okay. So so there is a so there, any sort of choice like that is going to affect 
uh, is going to affect other aspects of a, of a player's profile. I mean, yeah. wait, I, so I guess when is the – you mentioned that, that it could be a sign of age. Are there any other instances where pull, where if, if a player starts to pull the ball more often, then we might regard that as a bad sign? Uh, I mean, I think if you take a guy who doesn't have any power, <laughs> and he's uh, like if, if D. Gordon became a pole hitter, that would be bad for him. Okay. Uh, you know, there's certainly like the slap hitting guys who just can't hit the ball far enough for it to matter should try and spread the ball all over the field. Right. And so that's the profile that you would see. You want these to be all fields guys. Yeah. I mean, you want them to be hitting the ball on the ground and to the opposite field and up the middle and trying to, you know, uh, get as many singles as possible in order to use their feet because they're just not capable of hitting the ball over the wall. Are there batters who it seems could hit from more power, uh, but they choose to select an all-fields approach? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Joey Votto is probably a good example of this, right? He's a guy who, like, uh, one of the best hitters in baseball, the left center field. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think he hit 37 home runs a few years ago, but generally is in the 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, I think Ego wrote about this uh, a couple weeks ago where he started that last year trying to pull the ball more to get more cheap home runs. And then realized it was affecting the rest of his game negatively and went back to his normal approach. Uh, so it looks like, uh, you know, hitters could make a conscious decision and say, look, I, I'm going to pull the ball more to try to hit for more power. Uh, but, you know, I like my, you know, high on base, uh, lots of doubles approach a little bit more. Right. And of course, famously, that was the case always, that was the sort of narrative regarding Wade Boggs. If he decided to hit for power, yeah. he'd be right. able to. But, uh, I suppose that at some point there, there has to be, um, well, maybe this is the beginning point. You have to allow for the hitter's own uh, personal preferences and comfort as well. Yeah, and Ichiro, I think, was also another guy who hit tons of home runs in batting practice, and people would swear if he just changed his swing in the game and didn't try and hit so many singles, he could hit for power. Uh, but Ichiro wanted to hit 370 every year. Right, and he, um, well, he did a pretty good job of that. I don't know if he hit 370, but he... Uh, yeah, 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 I think he hit 372 one year. 372, yeah, that does sound familiar. I think that, yeah, I think that he and no, maybe Nomar Garcia Parros hit 372 one year. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Okay, well, so on a similar note, um, there's there's also this question, and we're sort of looking here at maybe more granular ways of understanding a hitter's batting approach. Um, there's been more, there have been more citations in well, fan graphs and also in in um, more in also in the sort of uh, mainstream media uh, of batted ball exit velocity. Yeah. Um, now, first of all, is that just because is it, is the data better now somehow? Is the data well, better? It's, it's it's publicly available. Oh, okay. Was it not so, publicly better available? because we didn't have it? Oh, so we didn't have it last year. They would just release it occasionally. Yeah. So like uh, Statcast was kind of in a beta form last year where. Uh, MLB would put it out on like home runs and on select plays, but it was not uh, freely available for every play. This year, with the relaunch of Baseball Savant under MLB's uh, umbrella, because they hired Darren Wilman, uh, they are releasing uh, basically batted ball exit velocity and launch angle for every play, which is great. Right, and and it, you mentioned the launch angle. Eno Saris wrote about that today, uh, with regard to sorry to Matt Duffy, the San Francisco Giants, Matt Duffy specifically, but a number of other players uh, more generally. Uh, also today, this morning, uh, Jeff Sullivan wrote about Trevor's story. Yeah. And Trevor, and he, he cites in that, uh, well, a couple of things with regard to Story's profile. For example, uh, we knew Story was going to probably hit a lot of balls in the air. Um, his first ten batted balls, nine of them were either flies or liners, so that uh, <laughs> that would seem to at least confirm early on that that is, that is Story's approach. 
Yeah. Uh, and it's yielded strong results in the form of four home runs. Um, another thing that Jeff does, though, is he cites the uh, batted ball velocities of, um, for Trevor Story, and six of the first ten have been 100 miles per hour or above. It's not bad. It's not bad, but at the same time, and I think this was something that was harder to establish last year, is for me at least, I know looking at those, I sense that they're good and or right. not bad, but I also do not necessarily know how to understand them in context. Do you have a, a sort of quick and dirty way to think about that? Yeah, so uh, I guess we'll just keep plugging Baseball Savant here. Uh, so Darren's actually got a, for every player now, if you go to the player page on Baseball Savant, he's got an exit velocity chart that shows their week-by-week exit velocity, and very helpfully, he has a league average baseline on the chart as well, showing that league average uh, exit velocity last year was around 92 miles an hour. 92, okay, so that's a, so that is a number at which we should look. And I and I think that maybe Eno Saris has mentioned this before, other writers at the site, I believe I've cited it before. There tends to be, if you look at the combination of exit velocity and launch angle, you can start to project, well, because because of physics, <laughs> um, but you can start to project or get a pretty good sense of a player's profile, right? Like, the, you know he hits the ball hard, and if he's hitting it in the air with some frequency, he's probably has some months. But there's also a donut. I did Alan Nathan, the physics of baseball guy, didn't he? Isn't there a donut somewhere that is bad? Yeah. A bad donut? No, it's a good donut. The donut's good. Donuts are delicious. Okay, uh, yeah, but but for batters. <laughs> yeah, no, for batters it's delicious too. Uh, so the donut hole is like 65 to 75 miles an hour, where you bloop the ball over the infield. Uh, so you actually see a spike in uh, production at a lower velocity. Like if you hit the ball 80 miles an hour, it generally carries, or 85 miles an hour, it generally carries to a fielder. If you hit it uh, in the air, it goes to the outfielder. If you hit it on the ground, it makes it to the fielder. But if you hit it a little softer, it's either a little blooper that falls in front of the outfielders or it's a squibber that the infielders can't quite get to. So you can actually be more predict- more productive by hitting the ball less hard. Wait, is the, Now, is the donut hole at some level responsible for Billy Burns' career? Basically, yeah. Okay, all right. So it's Billy Burns... Every good thing that's ever happened to Billy Hamilton has been the donut hole. Okay, right. So, and those two players are actually quite similar, in addition to being yeah. named Billy, uh, also fleet of foot. In some ways, of course, Billy Hamilton had the, uh, the better draft pedigree, although Billy Burns' game maybe seems to have uh, tr- uh, translated a bit better to the major league level. Um, well, uh, I don't know. Burns might have had a better year last year. Hamilton's, I think, had a better overall career. All right, whatever. That's fine. Yeah. Anyway, now we now we've analyzed all Billy's. Yeah, the, uh, so so they they hit they hit the donut hole, and that's an advantage to them. What are the other ranges we typically see? You said uh, there seems to be an, like a league average of 92 miles per hour. Jeff cited 100 miles per hour as being particularly good. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we say a guy's hitting the ball at 92 miles per hour. Does that mean we can also expect him to have a roughly average number of home runs and in, in a 300 BABIP, which is also league average? Not necessarily, because the launch angle matters a lot too, right? So if you hit the ball 92 miles an hour, but you're hitting a launch angle at, say, like 15 degrees, which is downwards, essentially, uh, you're hitting a lot of ground balls, you're going to be a slap hitter, you're going to be a singles guy. If you're hitting the ball 92 miles an hour, but you're hitting it at like 27 degrees, which is kind of like the, the optimal launch angle uh, to get the ball in the air and hit it square, then you're probably going to get a lot of extra base hits and some home runs. So uh, that's one of the things where before we didn't have launch angle last year, MLB was hardly ever putting that out except for on some home runs. We couldn't really come up with kind of an expected Babbitt or an expected 
you know, result on balls in play just with batted ball velocity. By itself, batted ball velocity actually doesn't tell you a whole lot. But with launch angle, it tells you an awful lot. Yeah. Although it's hard to, I think it's, um, it's hard to be very bad if you're sporting the highest uh, batted ball velocities, right? Sure. I mean, Giancarlo Stanton hits the ball harder than anybody else. And, uh, you know, I think, like, he averaged 99 last year or something. <laughs> like, he was almost at 100 miles an hour for an average. Uh, and obviously that helps him quite a lot. But I think, like, if you look at the batted ball velocity leaderboards, you don't necessarily see the best players in baseball. Like, Bryce Harper was, like, 50th or something. And, like, Mike Trout's, I don't know, top 20 or something. But, they, you know, these are the best hitters in the game, and they're not at the very top of the list. Right. And I read that someone, maybe it was in the discussion of, Oh yeah, it was in the discussion of story by Jeff Sullivan, um, where I think that <clears throat> uh, um, Trevor Story's highest bat of, uh, bat of ball velocity was 110 miles per hour, um, and he said, "Well, we don't know if that's the, his heights, but even if that is the, his, his highest exit velocity, then that's also I think that was the peak for uh, Buster Posey last year." Yeah, right. And in so, Buster Posey, uh, things worked out pretty well. Buster Posey controls the strike zone a little bit better than Trevor Story. Yeah. Right. But he also, uh, I mean, he's got his, his share of power and, uh. Yeah, sure. Power I mean, if you, if you're a shortstop with Buster Posey's power, that's not so bad. Yeah. What if you're a catcher with Buster Posey's power? That's not bad either, as long as you also have Buster Posey's, you know, defense and strikes on discipline. Okay. What would happen if Trevor Story began catching? How good do you think he'd be? Well, he'd probably get a lot of pass balls. Right. But if you took any, if you took a league average shortstop and then you moved him behind the plate to catch. The framing metrics would probably hate it. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the framing is definitely one of those things that was taught through repetition. Oh, okay. And so, but but we have to assume that, that of any of the players on the field, the <coughs> shortstop is going to possess some optimal combination. I mean, all the, all the, all the, <coughs> bless you. Sorry. All the, all the, all the players in the field who aren't already a catcher, that a shortstop is probably going to have an optimal combination of, like, athleticism and body control and, uh, you know, hands, I guess, yeah? Yeah, I mean, you'd probably say a shortstop or maybe a third baseman would be the best guy to move behind the plate if you were going to move someone to do it. Uh, they're more likely to be the right size. I think we've seen historically large catchers have problems behind the plate. Uh, so I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why you see, you know, guys like Josh Donaldson go from catcher to third base or Craig Vigio go from catcher to second base is there's a little bit of interplay between skills there. Okay, I want to ask uh, another question. This is a departure from the current conversation, uh, and it's uh, it's based merely in a simple observation, and I wonder if it reveals anything larger about the game. Um, I noticed uh, maybe on opening day or Monday, uh, which was sort of opening day 2.0, <clears throat> that both Manny Machado uh, in this, for the Baltimore Orioles and also Domingo Santana for the Milwaukee Brewers were leading off for their respective teams. Yeah. Uh, these are players who... You know, given a full season's worth of plate appearances, I mean, certainly Machado uh, would hit 30 home runs, and I think Domingo Santana has uh, at least he's exhibited above-average power numbers in the minor leagues. Um, is this somehow representative uh, to see two power hitters like this, and perhaps there are other examples throughout the league? Is it representative of um, a perhaps a slower moving change um, of, of or willingness on the part of teams? to deploy different sorts of batters um, at different areas of the lineup generally and specifically the leadoff position? 
Yeah, I don't think there's any question the top of the lineup has changed the last couple of years. I think we saw last year uh, the number two spot changed pretty dramatically, where you had a lot of teams saying, hey, look, we're going to put our best hitter, one of our best hitters in the number two spot. We're going to get away from having a slap hitting second baseman who, you know, supposed to bunt and move the runner over. He's got good back control. That's what you always Yeah, heard. right. That, that has kind of gone away, and now you're seeing teams take one of their best power hitters and put him in the number two spot. And now, I think this year with Machado and Santana and uh, well, Curtis Granderson is leaning off the bets, uh, you know, I think we're seeing kind of a changing uh, approach to, yeah, you're sacrificing some power in the sense of you're going to hit some more solo home runs because they're going to bat more without guys on base, but you can make that up by getting the more at-bats throughout the season, and they do come up with guys on base later in the game. And So I think we're seeing teams kind of embrace the approach of let's get our best hitters as the most at-bats as possible rather than stacking a bunch of bad hitters at the front and hoping that you know they get on base occasionally for our good hitters. So what is that – now, is this maybe at some level – I mean, I assume that there's some run effect, but is it is it big? Is it small? Or is it should we regard it as more of a symbolic change, an an embrace of of you know the sort of run production that these, for which these guys will be responsible, as opposed to huge changes over the course of the season? Yeah, I mean, any batting order effect is not going to be huge. I mean, you can hit Mike Trout ninth, and it would cost the Angels, you know, 10 or 15 runs over the course of a year or something. I mean, that's significant. That's a win, maybe two wins. Uh, but, you know, that's taking the best hitter on the planet and hitting him in the most suboptimal spot. Uh, and obviously most changes are not of that magnitude. So you're really talking with most of these tweaks, a couple of runs here and there. Uh, batting order just doesn't matter all that much. Okay. Um, and yet... It's uh, it might be a sort of uh, do you think it might be a clue to to clubs I mean clubs that are you know opting to um, experiment with batting order is it maybe a clue that the there's a sort of a connection between or feeling but among both the front office and the managerial staff that there's something uh, there's something to be gained from it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the fact that you're seeing like uh, maybe the Pirates are a good example of that this year, where they're hitting John Jason lead off the Andrew McCutcheon second, right? Like this is a dramatic departure from what they've done in the past. Uh, is 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 an openness. The Pirates, obviously, one of the most analytical teams in baseball, and Clint Hurdle and their staff really use the data from the front office and saying, hey, look, you know. We don't necessarily care about speed in the leadoff hitter anymore. We don't necessarily look at having a back control guy in the number two spot. Even if it doesn't make the difference on the margins, we're the kind of team that needs to get every marginal advantage we can. So we're going to go Jason McCutcheon at the top of the order because even if that only gets us four or five runs, maybe that adds up to one win and maybe we make the playoffs by one game. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, I like how you just seem to be like totally disinterested in that answer. You're just like, okay, let's move on. Well, no, I, I'm trying to. I recognize that you are on your deathbed here, yeah, Cameron, thanks. and yeah. so I'm trying, trying to get through <laughs> and trying to help you out. You can just be like, "You're too sick to podcast. Go away, Cameron." You, it is. I feel like I've been transported. I, I always have this sort of feeling, like uh, when I, at least when I'm sick, that I kind of transported back to like a, like a, like a street peasant from like medieval England, and it just kind of like a, you know, just dragging my body through the streets. And uh, so maybe in that way it's a bit of a historical uh, – well, anyway, it's a, it's a thought that doesn't really have a conclusion. No, no, it doesn't. Uh, how many of my wheezes have you been able to pick up on the mic? Oh, it's pretty substantial. Yeah, okay. yeah. I've, yeah. I've been trying to, like, pull away, but uh, – yeah. No, no, no. It's, I mean, it's fine. Uh, people should understand that you're a human. I mean, you know, because – Well, that's been called into question. It's before. right. It's not always obvious. I think yeah. that this will be clear. It you, could just be that I have like some kind of uh, you know glitch in the code. Right. Do you need some sort of uh, some sort of treatment? I was going to I was going to say the words Noah Syndergaard to you and see what. Oh, he's good. Yeah. 
uh, August Fagerstrom has suggested that it's not much different, at least from this uh, this first this opening day start or his his debut season debut. Uh, watching Noah Syndergaard in that game is not much different than watching essentially a Raldus Chapman, the one inning version of a Raldus Chapman over the course of a full game. Yeah, people always wondered like what what would a Raldus Chapman be like if he started? Now we know. Right. Like, uh, this is a uh, hundred, uh, you know, ninety-nine mile an hour fastball, mid-nineties slider. Uh, pretty good changeup. This is uh, this is unfair. Right. It, but there was, just a brief reminder. Why did uh, why did Araldis Chapman end up in the in the bullpen? Uh, well, I think he's the kind of guy who, uh, when they tried to move him back to the rotation a few springs ago, he was sitting like ninety to ninety-three. It suggests that like either from a uh, Health standpoint, he didn't, he didn't feel comfortable going all out and max effort on every pitch in order to, to last six or seven innings or a hundred pitches. Uh, or maybe just from a, uh, motivational perspective or a, um, whatever that word is that, uh, generally people associate with, uh, having energy is escaping me because I'm sick. <laughs> uh, you know, inspiration. I don't know. That's not the right word. There's a word uh, <laughs> that people use to talk about like the, uh, amount of, energy they have when they're, you know, in a certain situation. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I don't know what that word is. Uh, but apparently Rolls Chapman didn't have that in the starter, so his stuff played way, way down. Right. And is it – I feel like we this has happened before too. I mean, I'm just thinking back when Jonathan Papelbon came up, for example, right? There were questions – like it seemed like he could start, but then he uh, was utilized in the bullpen at one point. Yeah. And, then, and he liked it because he was successful, I think, probably is one reason. Um, and you, and adrenaline. That's the word I was thinking of. Ah, adrenaline. adrenaline. Okay, right. Yeah, he was experiencing right. adrenaline, right? Yeah. But you do see, you you do see players. There's just seem to be some connection between the, the success a player has. It must feel very good, right, to be a, someone like Aroldis Chapman, for example, to have the capacity to throw over 100 miles per hour, and to really allow zero. You know, I mean, close to yeah. zero runs over the course of a season. I mean, I think he likes throwing as hard as he does. He got the tattoo of the fastest the pitch in pitch effects history recorded, like on 05.3. He has that tattooed on his arm. Like okay. He takes pride in the fact that he throws really hard. Yeah. What if someone else breaks it? Well, then he'll have to, like, you know, get an updated tattoo. Could, no, wait, so, so if you put Noah Syndergaard in the closer's role, would he break it? Well, he came out of the bullpen of the playoffs last year, and I think he didn't throw significantly harder. He was like 101 instead of 99. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you made Syndergaard a full-time closer, maybe. Yeah. Noah Syndergaard, I believe, was hitting, what, the high 90s with his slider the other day? 95 with a slider. Yeah. 95 with a slider. He threw a bunch of 99-per-hour uh, sinkers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I, mean, we're, I think we're reaching a point where – Baseball is going to have to consider what to do about this. Because, like, a couple of years ago, there was, like, a few guys in baseball who could throw in the high 90s. And now, basically every team in baseball has a guy sitting at 100 with a nasty breaking ball. Uh, at some point, we're going to talk about, like, lowering the mound or moving the mound back or something. Like, the quality of stuff is getting so good that hitters just don't have chances. So, the league, the league average velocity has been creeping up. Uh, Not creeping, flying. All right, so it's been flying up. Since, well, so here's part of my question. Now, obviously, our ability to record that um, in a in a reliable way um, has has also got has improved. Yeah. Um, and for the amount of time, especially by way of pitch effects, um, for the amount of time we've been able to do that, we we've seen it flying up. <coughs> do we have any understanding of 
the increase in pitching velocity before our ability to record it reliably? Not really. I mean, so we don't have great data uh, before like the early 2000s when Baseball Info Solutions started tracking it based on video. Uh, and obviously that wasn't pitch of X. That's, you know, manual recording, whatever the TV, uh, networks right. showed. Uh, but better than what? Better than nothing. Right. I mean, it's like better than having no data. And I, but I think historically, we can lean on the anecdotal data, right? So like, uh, Randy Johnson was notable for throwing 100 miles an hour. And when he did it, it made Sports Center. And like, Nolan Ryan would throw like 102. And it was like, this guy's going in the Hall of Fame because he throws hard. These guys were historical anomalies. And they're now doing what like 30 or 40 guys in baseball can do on a daily basis. Right. And, but to be fair, they were both starters doing that, which is unique. Right. But I think the, the fact that they were, uh, so unusual that mm-hmm. they were essentially like circus shows, like the, come see this pitcher who can throw 100 miles an hour for seven innings. That was, or can hit 100 miles an hour. Like they weren't sitting there, but you know, they could occasionally hit 100 miles an hour in a start. That was like an attraction. Or now, uh, you know, literally half the pitchers in the league could, like, hit 100 miles an hour if they want to. Maybe not literally. That was a bad use of the literally. <laughs> I'll yell at myself for that. Just some high fraction of pitchers <laughs> throw 100 miles an hour if they wanted to. And do we know why? Uh, we don't really know why. I mean, it seems like uh, there's been training and, uh, you know, some of the, the new techniques of how to add velocity seem to work. Uh, so we've seen a decent amount of guys who've lost their velocity and been able to get it back. Uh, so it seems like some of this muscle training and, and strength training uh, does seem to add velocity. Uh, it also could just be that um, pitchers are more aware of added value of velocity now. And so, like, this generation of pitchers grew up seeing guys throwing in the mid-'90s and said, oh, I want to do that too, versus, you know, maybe the generation before grew up watching Juan Marichal with his crazy wind-up throwing breaking balls and were more likely to try and learn how to pitch like that. Right. I mean, there must have been some sense before we had uh, – more reliably recorded velocity data that throwing harder was better than throwing softer. I mean, it, it's been a part of the sort of scouting parlance for some time. Yeah, but I think there were always uh, suspicions around guys that threw hard. I mean, even like, well, you look back at Paul Durham, right? And this guy that throws hard and doesn't throw strikes. And, uh, like the main character who you're supposed to root for is like, hey, man, stop throwing the ball as hard. Learn how to pitch. Like kind of the idea was that throwing the ball as hard as possible you know, there's that old cliche, everyone in the major leagues can hit a fastball, right? Like, uh, you need to learn how to throw off-speed stuff, you need to learn how to command, you need how to mix your pitches. That was pitching. That was the art of pitching. Uh, and the idea that you can just come in and overwhelm guys with stuff was seen as, like, immature, essentially. And now, we're at the point where you can just come in and overwhelm <laughs> guys with stuff. Uh, right, because, it all, and also, they, I guess it should be noted that that stuff tends to be complemented uh by and of course the arm speed helps in, the, in this way by uh, difficult secondary pitches as well. Yeah, I mean right. They, these guys like Syndergaard has not just a fastball guy. Like Chapman, uh, you know, uh, I, I know he's thrown some changeups, but he's like mostly a fastball guy. He's a you know he's going to come in and throw in, in the high nineties uh, or low hundreds, and that's mostly what you're going to see. Well, you see some sliders, but for the most part, he's getting him out with a fastball. Uh, but starters obviously need multiple pitches, and the fact that they're, you know, like Jose Fernandez and these guys are throwing, you know, 98, 99, and then mixing in, you know, uh, 70, 75 curveballs, uh, that's unfair. Right. Uh, last thing about which I'll ask you is, uh, um, I mean, it's it's never it's never fun to see this happen, but it appears as though a recent number two overall pick, Tyler Kolek. Um, is going to have to undergo or has just undergone Tommy John surgery. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. And, 
Um, he's notably, I think I saw maybe it was Jim Callis. I could be lying. It wasn't Jim Callis. Something to the effect of uh, both, like the top two picks from the 2014 draft now. Of course, one of them didn't actually sign. Um, but it's Brady Aiken and... Uh, now Tyler Kolek, yeah. Right, and Tyler Kolek. Uh, both both prep arms and both have... Uh, uh, both have are being compelled or have been compelled already or about to undergo Tommy John surgery. Yeah. Uh it seems like it would um it seems like it would it would be a reminder that uh, picking high school arms is is a dangerous thing. Um uh, yeah. but I, I guess I'm I'm looking ahead a little bit to the 2016 draft, right? Because I think there's a at least one prep pitcher, Groom, Jason Groom, yeah. Jason Groom, yeah. uh who, who is uh what a Philadelphia area prep pitcher, Jer- Jersey, yeah. Jersey, right. And yeah. uh in I don't know what 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 is this sort of what do we know about how teams are feeling about these prep arms and when is the risk worth it? I mean, I, I think there's no question. Teams know that taking a high school arm uh, near the top of the draft is ex- extremely risky. But the question isn't so much is it is is the risk changing? It's is the reward changing? So are we capable of developing these guys better than we used to be? Are we capable of taking this guy and making him you know a better pitcher than he would have been 10 or 15, 20 years ago? If teams think I can get Clayton Kershaw, who was a high school pitcher that wasn't taken number one overall, but I think any team if we were going to redo that draft would happily take Clayton Kershaw. Uh, if you think your chances of, of turning your high school pitcher into that are higher, even if the risk stays the same, the calculation changes, and you say, well, the reward is now worth it. Uh, and so I think that's what teams are asking themselves is, do they believe their development pl- are, is in place? Do they think that, you know, through the use of pitch counts or whatever, how are they can develop pitchers at a better rate than, than history has suggested in the past? Uh, then perhaps it's it's worth it to take a prep pitcher uh, with one of the top overall picks, but I don't think there's any question. People know that the flame out rate on these guys is still going to be, you know, seventy, eighty percent. Wait, is the is somehow the I don't know the conversion rate on non-injured prep pitchers? Is there a way to to push that up? Well, I think what we're seeing right now is that pitching is dominating the game in a way that it hasn't before. And one of the questions is is are we teaching better? Uh, are we teaching pitchers how to? you know, be able to uh, dominate in a way that they haven't before. So, like, Jose Fernandez wasn't a prep pitcher uh, necessarily, uh, but he was a, you know, uh, 18-year-old who was drafted who got to the majors very quickly and became one of the best pitchers in baseball very quickly. And I think what we've seen is a shortened timeline for guy, for the guys who uh, stay healthy and are successful. They're not spending five or six years in the minor leagues anymore. Now you're saying, okay, with that kind of stuff, we can maybe get you to the big leagues in two years, and then we can really get some value out of you. Okay. All right, Cameron. Well, uh, you fulfilled your obligation to the program. I invite you to go now slobber or <laughs> not slobber on someone else. I think I will go drown myself in a bath. Okay. All right. Uh, well, thank you. Stick around for one second, but for the moment, thank you very much, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. All right. That has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. Dave Cameron, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.